Hello, this is Rob Woods and welcome to episode 16 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in charity fundraising and who wants ideas and inspiration for how to enjoy their job, raise more money and make a bigger difference. Before we get going with this second episode on digital fundraising with the brilliant Emily Casson, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's been leaving reviews and getting in touch on Twitter and LinkedIn about the podcast. I'm so happy to hear that you're finding these episodes helpful, so thank you very much for letting me know and for spreading the word. And in this episode, I'm sharing the second half of my conversation with Emily Casson, who's the Digital Marketing Manager at Cats Protection. Emily and her team have been achieving extraordinary growth. From around £250,000 a year in 2016 to around £6 million a year now, four years later. In episode 15, she explained her simple, clear approach to fundraising, which lies at the heart of this success. Her team's motto is, think big, start small, scale quickly, or fail fast. In that episode, she gave specific examples to help us better understand how to apply these four ideas in practice. And we also spent some time, in particular, looking at ways she applies this philosophy to Facebook. And in today's episode, she explains how this approach will also improve the success of your fundraising through email and through your website, as well as more wise advice about achieving a unified, supporter-friendly culture where decisions are based on what the donor needs, rather than what the various fundraising teams might want to say. So let's get on with today's episode. We pick up the conversation as I ask Emily about how her data-driven, ambitious approach applies to email communication with supporters. This episode of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast is brought to you by the Bright Spot Members Club. As a practical alternative to one-off conferences and courses whose impact can fade all too quickly, the Members Club is an online resource that gives you ongoing access to a whole library of video training courses, monthly coaching webinars and live training events. It's all designed to help you learn, enjoy your job and raise more money. To join the 300 fundraisers already in the club, or just to find out more, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk. Would you tell me in terms of email, what are some things that the Emily of 10 years ago might not have known yet or would have wanted to know in how actually you've ended up applying your overarching strategy? Yeah. Well, I think one of the big things I've learned about email, and I've spoken to a lot of organisations and helped them, is a lot of the email, particularly newsletters, which is something a lot of charities do, is focused around internally and the charity. So it might be, I mean, we used to have this, that monthly newsletter and every different fundraising team had a slot. So everybody be like, oh, they all went. So it didn't really have any overarching theme. It didn't really match up. But everybody's like, oh, but it's my slot. And it didn't matter whether one team had three amazing things to say and the other team didn't really have any content. That was the structure. And that is so common at a lot of charities. They have that structure in terms of these are the different people that need a slot or these are the different kind of things we're going to talk about. We did change that and we did flip it on its head and actually say, okay, from a support point of view, and that would be my top tip for email that actually think about the person that's getting it and reading it. What does it look like to them? They absolutely do not care that it was so-and-so's turn to have content this month. (laughs) They want interesting stories. And one of my top tips for email would be to look at the subject line. 
that the average open rate is about 24% in a nonprofit. So for all of the other majority of people, the subject line is the email. So either make it absolutely say what the email needs to, if it's a reminder for an event or something like that, or make it really engaging so it stands out so they open it. Try emojis. You normally get about a 4% bump whenever you're using emoji in an email. Really? Yeah, in the subject line. So, I mean, don't everybody go with a giant string of emojis tomorrow, (laughs) but use it and that works. And it's just something that, draws a bit of attention and gets people to open the email because I think a lot of people still use email wrongly that the idea of the email is either to impart information or what I would say is more to inspire action so your subject line is to get people to read the email your email is then to get people to take action that action might be think about volunteering it might be donations it might be a petition but that should then be driving traffic to the website rather than just think and be like, oh, loads of people opened the email this month. And I will say, don't care how many people opened, I care how many people then acted on it. So so um, a key thing I'm hearing, which sounds obvious, but I, I agree, in practice, it, many of us are not clear enough. We should look at any of those emails that we are planning to send out, and are we crystal clear what the call to action is? Yeah from the body of the email is that message is being sent yeah and i think i would say what is the call for action not what are the 20 different calls for actions that we all want to put in and be really clear like what is the purpose of that email what are you then going to judge it by whereas if you try and put 20 different calls for actions that's just going to dilute all of them and test it because i have many times and i know that that's the case and Look at the actual email itself, that there are certain people that like clicking on pictures. There are certain people that like clicking the big click now button. But there's also a sizable minority of people that like clicking links within the text. And they just will not click the big click now button at all. So it's thinking of really practical stuff like that and looking at the email itself. And I kind of bring it back a bit further, I think, be like, why are you sending that email in the first place? That if you are sending a monthly newsletter because you've always sent a monthly newsletter, stop. Like that might be a bit controversial, but it is very much be like, what is the point? It takes a lot of time and effort. And unless you can say to me, right, I've got a really clear reason for sending it, it might be completely justified in terms of, okay, I want to update our supporters each month. But actually, have you asked people what they want to get and how often? And that doesn't have to be a donor survey that goes out to absolutely everybody. It can be a really quick and dirty survey monkey in terms of asking people. I mean, I will, the caveat to that is that what people say that they do and what people actually do do not match up. But it's thinking about why you're doing it and then the actual email itself that I love behavioral economics. I've just spent the last few months doing an IDM course in behavioral economics, looking at nudge theory and things. And there's some really practical principles you can use in that, like whether it's kind of email or whether it's website, if you've got an image in there with a person and their eye line is looking at, say, the click now button, people are more likely to click it. They won't be able to tell you why or articulate it, but it is just a subconscious thing. So I think it is like looking fundamentally at your email program 
And we've changed ours that when I took over in 2016, we sent 54 emails that year. And now we send over a thousand different email campaigns. So we've done a lot of segmentation of the data. And segmentation is always a word that scares people. But it's basically putting people in different pots and deciding what they want. So if somebody opens every single email that you ever send them, regardless of topic, these are one of your most engaged people. So therefore, maybe pick up the phone, find out why they're so engaged, actually investigate that. If somebody's never, ever opening anything, find out why. I mean, it might be as simple as it's a dead email address they don't check anymore, or it might be like, you know what? your content's not that expiring or you email me too often or something that's easily fixable before they then stop their support of the charity. So the simple things like that and segmenting based on engagement or segmenting based on level of donor or what they're interested in. And the beauty of all the digital stuff is the data that you can get. You can tell what people are clicking in. If people are always clicking on your challenge events emails, we now send them extra challenge event emails. So the majority of our database wouldn't want to constantly be hearing about marathons and stuff, but there is a core group of people that absolutely do want to hear about that. So we, at the minute, don't have any fancy preference center or anything like that that we probably should have, but we don't. So it is looking at what you can do with the data you've got. And that might be as simple as I send 100 people a newsletter every month, but I never think to spend half an hour looking at what they've actually clicked on. I just do it again next month. And I appreciate for small charities that half an hour is a lot of time, but it is really worth it if you can then be like, okay, if I make my email program work harder, I'm therefore going to raise more money. Um, goodness, so much good stuff there. And again, I've got... Uh, more than one uh, thread I'd like to pick up on. S the first one is, I've heard that before, that idea of, of your classic newsletter being fair from the point of view of the six departments internally, but absolutely disregarding the point of view of, of the person who's meant to, it's meant to interest. Yeah. Practically speaking, any tips for how you've changed the charity culture internally, whereby everyone's happy to go with that? You know, is, is it any element to do with um, the, the way people are managed or the way targets are done? Uh, so, so you get to a point where everyone is trying to do the thing that is supporter friendly rather than unequivocally fair because now it's my turn. Well, it was, I'll admit, a big culture shift that, as you can imagine, people have been doing that for a long time. So I introduced digital booking forms. So really simple form, and the top thing on that was, what is the aim of your campaign? You then selected which digital channels you would prefer it to go out on. I would then review that and have a chat with you and say, okay, you selected all of these, that actually I think you can achieve your target and the aim of your campaign by just using these. So often people would say, right, I want a soulless email to the entire database. I would then go back and be like, okay, we're not going to do that. But you said your aim is, say, recruiting five marathon runners. I think we can achieve that aim by using these channels in this way. So I think once they saw that, yes, they were losing, in some cases, that slot. But once they saw that, actually, that didn't matter. What mattered was how could digital help them achieve the aims? Yes. 
And once that kind of got through, that people were like, okay, I get that, that actually I'm not as precious now about having my slot because we used to have a similar situation on social media that everybody would take turns regardless of content, whereas scrapped all that. And it was a bit of a shift for a while and there were certain losers that got less content, but actually eventually they realised it doesn't matter what volume of content they get. It's all about, they've got targets, they've got aims that they want to achieve. Can we do that without flooding everything with various different content? Yeah, that makes sense. And in in various walks of life i've noticed that the more it sounds so obvious this cliche but the more clear you are of your outcome it it frees you up to let go of the vehicle the how that you you used to think you were so wedded to and was the answer the clearer you are where you want to get to it becomes easier to be flexible on what you might do to reach that that outcome yeah, I think, like I say, it's just the how. The most important thing is the why. And anybody that couldn't fill in that top box about what is the aim and target didn't get any slots. And that was because there were some people that were like, well, why do you want a social media post? Or why do you want an email? I'd be like, oh, because we've just always put it out on email. And be like, well, think back to now we've got this new system of thinking why. And so that did actually, some people just decided we just weren't going to do that. If the only reason we were doing it is because either somebody higher up 10 years ago had said, oh, yeah, can you make sure you get your slot on social and email? And it'd be like, okay, it's not actually useful. And it's kind of, there's a cost attached in getting the assets together. And also it's my time creating it. So there were some things that we did stop doing. And I think a lot of charities are like, oh, but we've always done this. People will expect it. And actually, people don't remember what they've got yesterday, let alone last month, that they won't remember it. And unless you get masses of supporters going to be like, oh, we really missed that email, in which case, well, then that's a clear indication that that email was working very well. But I'll have to admit that's never happened in all the years I've been telling people to stop doing things. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I've got a, a very quick question. Might, might seem blindingly obvious, but so if surprise, surprise, the, the people who are doing best at this make that half hour to analyze the data for what happened last time. But in the real world, the human world, some of us find it hard to be motivated. You know, we might not feel confident of our analyzing skills or we might be pulled by by the the more tempting seeming activity. This is hard for you maybe. Fundamental to your philosophy is why would you not? But you must have some internal stakeholders who you've coaxed to make more time for analyzing data. Any any thoughts or beliefs that you've noticed help someone do more? Well, I think once people start seeing the benefits to that approach, that definitely helps. But for smaller charities, in the past, I've just found them a volunteer to do it. So a volunteer can look at all the data and then be like, right, these are the top five things that you need to know. And there are people that just naturally don't like the data. I mean, I'm very geeky. I absolutely love like looking in all the analytics and finding out new things. But there's some people that just doesn't come naturally. And there's some people you can coach and help them with it. And then there's other people that actually, what we want is we want to make the digital campaigns better. If that's going to make somebody really uncomfortable doing it themselves and really stress them out, then actually, if we can get a skilled volunteer to come in, look at all the analytics, dial it down to a few bullet points, then actually is that the best approach? Right. So for many of the small charities, 
there must be out there someone who cares about your cause or your charity who absolutely has this skill set. So that would be a top tip. If this is not your own skill set, you know, what could you do to go and find that, that volunteer who would enjoy coming in and serving your cause in this way? I think the easiest route is students. That stu- university students, a lot of them are doing this sort of research and data day in, day out. They're looking for something on their CV. A lot of charities are nervous about it because they might only stay for a year or two. But in reality, would you rather have an amazing person for a year that comes in, does it, you then get another student for next year? Mm. That absolutely works. Or a corporate partnership with a local digital company that there are a lot of digital marketing companies out there and a lot of them do pro bono work. So they will often be like, okay, right, actually you can have one of our analytics guys for a day a month and that's our kind of CSR program. But for you as a charity, one day a month may be all you need for somebody to go in and drill and that works perfectly for both parties. Great tips, very practical. So I think we've got time for one more channel in this level of detail-ish. How have you applied your overarching strategy to your website in general? Well, we've launched a new website last autumn and something we really looked at was looking at it from the point of view of support there. Previously, similar to a lot of things, it had a section for each different fundraising team that they kind of did the content for. So from a supporter coming in, even some of the language of the headings, they might not see themselves as like the corporate partnerships team or something like that, that from an outsider, that it was changing the structure. We got rid of an awful lot of pages because we looked at the analytics and there were some pages that were getting a handful of people per quarter. And that was a big thing we looked at, that not being afraid to actually have less content because people will be more focused on it. Because our website, like a lot of charity websites, had probably started off quite neat and tidy. And then over the years, somebody had added that to it and somebody had added that to it. And all of a sudden it blooms into this massive thing. So I wouldn't say ours is perfect now, but it's a lot more data-driven in terms of the orders of the drop-downs or anything, in terms of what are the public clicking on. Some of that is a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of what's got the most prominence. And also something that we found is the majority of people don't just come on your website and wander around and go off and use all your drop-downs. The majority of people are coming through to a particular landing page or they want to find out a particular thing. So one of my top tips would be just ask three people completely not connected to your charity that know nothing about it, how easy it is for them to say donate, how easy it is for them to find out information on a particular topic and how easy is it to find out ways to get involved. And that's like, you can pay companies to do this in great detail and produce great report, or you can just get three people. And one of the best ways to do it is pair up with another charity and swap so i would say don't do it with people internally because you know all your internal jargon and everything and it might be just asking for really quick and dirty feedback like that so some of it i've had before has been really practical in terms of actually i didn't understand what that heading was so i'm not going to click on that okay maybe that is something we refer internally yeah we know what we're talking about but that's completely meaningless to the general public So I think it is looking at things like that or looking at like how easy was it for them to donate? 
that there are charities that I worked with before that didn't actually have an online donation facility that their donate page said send us a check like download this form and then send us a check with this form <laughs> absolutely do not do that but some of it is really practical stuff in terms of if they don't find it that easy to donate they're not going to donate to you that you need to make it as easy as possible for people to do that and the best way is actually to test it and attest were they happy with the welcome email they got were they happy with the comms that actually get people to sign up and do it and like i say ask people what they think of it and also look at the analytics which the two things don't always match up in terms of what people say they do and what people actually do but that like i say is a really quick and easy thing everybody can go away and do tomorrow and you'll be fascinated by some of the things that you see you're as blind to your own website because you see it often and you're like, oh, we thought that bit really worked. And then if you get three or four people come back and be like, yeah, I didn't understand that section or, ooh, I couldn't really navigate on that or, ooh, I didn't realise I could click on that bit or I tried to, one of the things we've had in the past is like, ooh, I tried to click on that header and it wasn't clickable. And we were like, oh, no, it's not supposed to be. But I was like, okay, so if everybody's naturally clicking on it, we will make it clickable. Like, we will give them that option. Goodness, yes. It's so easy to um, become unaware of these, you know, these blind spots, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it takes a level of um, vulnerability for individuals and a culture to be yeah. willing to, to do that and not be defensive. Um, I, I, I think the tactics you've laid out are, are a good antidote to that. But anything else you've learned along the way to help people let go of their own curse of knowledge yeah well i think it is hard because particularly you have to bear in mind people have spent an awful lot of time developing websites and things so you have to kind of bear that in mind that my top tip would be don't take it personally that if you are taking a data-driven approach and it's all about data it might be you know what i did spend ages doing that page but hasn't quite worked and that's okay that's not a personal failing that's you absolutely did the right thing in testing it and trying to get away from being like, okay, this isn't personal criticism. This is something really constructive I can use to improve it. And with anything like a website or any digital platform, there's no end version. It's constantly changing and improving and asking for advice and how you can improve it shouldn't be a scary thing. Yeah, I had a really fascinating chat uh, recently with, with Leslie Pinder for the podcast uh, and and she also is a, an expert in insight and one of the key themes i took from that conversation was how um it's wrong to think that any of our fundraising or any bit of research is about finding a right answer it's oh you're however valuable the piece of research it's only ever going to take you slightly closer to the right direction yeah in this journey and um yeah. Everything she said to me was an embodiment of that philosophy, which I think is, and, and again, because she believes that and I hear that similar belief system in you, that's why at the beginning of this whole conversation you said to me, you know, it's about continually testing, fail yeah. quickly and then keep going again. Um, yeah. And in that respect, if you believe that, it's easier to not take it personally. But if someone hasn't got that overarching philosophy, it is easier to become a little defensive and for it to really sting. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are certain projects that have been my baby and I've been very protective of, and particularly now I've got a team, I have to let go. 
And there's certain things that change over time. Like there's some things that I put in place a couple of years ago, whether it's processes or campaigns, worked absolutely brilliantly two years ago. Now my team are coming to me and going like, oh, we want to change that fundamentally. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like I put a lot of work into it, but it's not thinking, oh, that's all been wasted. That's thinking, okay, that really worked for a really long time. Now it's not working. Therefore, I'm not going to hold tight and be like, no, you can't change, I think. Because my team are actually more pushy than I am in terms of wanting things to be better, that it is accepting that things change over time and things that worked in the past probably aren't going to work in the future. But what have we learned from them? And as long as you think, okay, so what have I learned from doing that? Or actually, what has that enabled us to do while it's been going well? Then that's less scary rather than being like, oh, something I put a lot of work into is now going to fundamentally change. Yeah. When I was studying resilience, I discovered that really resilient people, people who are able to just kind of accept things going wrong, but just ongoing rather than not knocked knocked back for two months what one of the beliefs they tend to have is is i have never failed if i tried hard did my best and i learned something so if there's any kind of learning whatsoever it's incorrect for me to to label what just happened as a failure yeah uh, and i think that again that's easy to say <laughs> normally when things are going okay i know that as well as anyone else when something's gone wrong it can be harder to initially practice that belief yeah but, but just knowing it at all over the last couple of years has has helped me bounce back that bit quicker and value the learning because very often cliche there it is the learning you get from when something went wrong is much more valuable in the long term than what you appeared to have lost in this particular yeah. project itself and i think it's well not beating yourself up we're all human but like i say there are days when we're all like oh that really didn't work and i've really taken that personally and like i say it's how you bounce back from that and I think I'm lucky in that I've got so many different projects and campaigns on the go that I haven't got all my eggs in one basket that that's a massive deal if that certain thing goes right or wrong because there's all these other things that we can focus on. But like I say, I am human. There will be times when I will not preach my own philosophy and will take it very personally, but it's how you get past that. So across this conversation, one, one thing I've noticed is you appear to be if you're attached to anything, it is, you're attached to the overarching purpose, philosophy and strategy of aiming really big, being super ambitious. And yeah. that means start small, test, yeah. test again, be willing to fail and keep, keep going. That overarching thing, you're attached to that yeah. more than any one project, more than any one test, more than any one fundraising campaign or any one person. It's, it's the overarching belief system that drives everything. And be, because you hold that true and with integrity, that at some level that seems to make it easier for you to do these other things and keep moving forward. I, I think definitely, but I think even that belief system, we did tweak it last year. So it used to be think big, start small and scale quickly. In then in various conversations with people, it was actually, you need something around failing in there. So that's why we added like, all kind of fail and learn at the end so previously it was like no we're just going to scale everything up whereas it was like we do like i say i'm pretty wild at that philosophy but i am open to tweaking it and changing it and improving that and that does make it easier in terms of like different channels come and go different campaigns will come and go but that's the overarching philosophy we look to approach everything with and 
interestingly, this is sounds a bit meta, even that in and of itself needs to be testable and improvable. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, is the one last idea or top tip that you would observe, even if it's something a tiny bit different to anything we've said so, so far, to do with um, the website that someone listening, whether their charity is large or small, something they could consider doing to help improve their website? I'd say look at the kind of actual content. We've spoken a lot about the data and structure and what people are clicking on, but make it engaging content make it something really interesting i love the storytelling approach like what story is your website trying to tell what do you want people to do and change it around so it's not all about the charity that make the donor the hero a bit more in terms of it's not kind of ooh, how can they support the charity it's right how can we all work together for this particular cause and look at the language you use. Is it very much like we are doing this and you could support us to do this? Or is it like together we can? And look at the actual content and go through. And my top tip would be get somebody else to do that, that we're too close to our own causes and we know it. But ask somebody else to feedback, okay, like what is the tone? Did you feel that you were being preached to? A lot of charity websites are often like, oh, we're the experts in this kind of looking down a bit on the general public like or did you feel like oh I was really engaged I was really excited about that asking people what emotion they feel when they look at the website is not something people often do mm. um so uh, get someone else involved because it's so hard you know hard for us to see the wood for the trees yeah. just you might say a lot of the same concepts but are you saying we do this we did that or you helped this to happen you enabled this cat to be more safe or so something as sounds really prosaic and i know there's more to it than this but look how many times you use the word we and how many of those times could you actually being using the word you and actually it's about the supporter enabling that that to happen yeah. and then another thing I, I i sense more of your content now compared to maybe five ten years ago if, if i looked would would be about people out there who care about cats stories about that quotes about that images of those people things they did or asked us or there's more of that content rather than the purely internally what we did to help this cat yeah and i think there's also a lot more engaging videos and things that previously you used to be able to download a lot of pdfs from the website now that's all actual content with little practical videos and little quizzes and little things to get people engaged that it's very much building a two-way relationship that it's not a static website that we want people to go on. It's like interact with us, get in touch, let us know what you're doing. It's transforming that model to be like, okay, we've put this content up to actually, this is a joint thing we're all doing together. And how can we reflect that on the website? Yeah. And I'm guessing there will be some topics and themes where it is appropriate to find some budget to get, those films professionally made yeah. and it would be an error not to but I, is it also true that if we're a small charity and currently we just don't have any budget to get you know really smart professional films made do you do you think there's there's plenty of things where they could just be cracking on with their own smartphone and doing some versions of this and as long as the topic is right and it's not sending the wrong signal rough and ready films for many topics are you know, better than no films at all 
I think sometimes they're better than polished films. That we've tested this on kind of Facebook advertising and sometimes the rough and ready kind of self-shot stuff outperforms the nice professional studio. Not always, and the professional studio certainly has its place, but actually people are so scared about doing rough and ready, whereas that's the content people relate to and get excited about. Mm. So um, certainly we've, we've found in, you know, um, people on our major gifts mastery program and corporate fundraisers who practice what we teach, uh, absolutely the same thing, just the spontaneity of getting some kind of film you just quickly shot yourself out to that company that you're working with has an amazing power or, or um, more and more of the people I work with rather than sending a, a 16 page proposal they're sending in fact Tony Gaston who was on the podcast just the other day has a wonderful story it led to a 50,000 pound gift and rather than send a long proposal he said a one page proposal with links to three you know 60 second you know, self shot films yes. made in the field um, so I, 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 um, I totally agree there are some challenges to do with the times we are living in. But I think one of the advantages really is this sort of lowering a barrier to entry and, and, and making it, some things are so much easier for the person to do even with little or no budget. Yeah, I think definitely that's the case. And I think as well that every organisation has somebody with digital skills in that kind of we've got digital champions across the organisation and one of the best people doing our gaming stuff is a cat care assistant and so it's putting that call out in terms of right who have we already got with our staff and volunteer network that would quite like doing some little films it might not be the obvious person in comms or in fundraising it might be somebody completely different that might say oh actually on the side this is something that i really enjoy doing yeah, that's a great idea because the more you as a team are modelling that and reaching out for them, the more other teams are going to become less sort of siloed in their thinking. Yeah. And then the more and more that happens, A, each project gets better because the person with the right skills is doing it, but B, this whole communication and relationships uh, and re becomes more holistic across the whole whole set of teams rather than um, people just staying in their box. We need to bring it to a close. If people, I know quite a few people in the Northeast already know you because you, you spend a lot of time uh, getting out and about and, and helping in, in various ways. But if the, any of the listeners to the podcast wanted to, to send you some feedback or to um, tweet about this or, or, or get in touch and ask a follow-up question, uh, if you're on Twitter, what's your Twitter name or should they go via LinkedIn, what's the best place people could reach you or send feedback? Twitter, I'm simply at Emily Casson. So I am pretty easy to find and I'm also active on LinkedIn. I mean, not surprisingly, working in digital marketing, I am pretty easy to find online, but I'm always open to tweets and LinkedIn messages. And I love hearing feedback and I love hearing people like that listen to things that I've done like six months down the line and what they've done differently and do like I love hearing other people's results that if they've implemented any of this, what has changed as a result? Mm, great. So, so um, yes, if, if uh, someone's listening and they've, I mean, you've covered so many great ideas and, and principles there, but A, as they listen, if they found it helpful, uh, we'd love to hear from you and, and B, in due course, once you've implemented any of these ideas again, 
um, that would be a fantastic thing if you could um, let Emily or I know, or both of us. Emily, um, I've taken up enough of your time. I know you've got lots of other things to get done probably by the end of the day. So um, a huge thank you for your time and so many helpful tips and principles and bits of advice for, for how you do your fundraising and, and work with other teams as well. Um, I, I hope maybe we can catch up in, again in a, a few months' time for a next instalment. But for now, Emily Casson, thank you ever so much for appearing on the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, and I hope it was useful for everybody. Yes, it really was. Thanks, Emily. Bye-bye. Thanks, babe. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this, the second half of my interview with Emily Casson. If you want to go back to the key ideas we explore in this episode, do take a look at the episode notes in the blog and podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. If you found the episode helpful, I'd be incredibly grateful if you could leave a review or share it with other people so that these sessions can help more and more fundraisers. Or if you'd like to hear the whole interview, including bonus content about Emily's inspirations, other advice and other lessons she's learned throughout her career, I've put a video of the entire interview with supporting notes in the Brightspot Members Club. If you're not a member of the club yet, but you'd like to find out more about that whole library of training resources and coaching webinars, you can find out all about it at brightspotmembersclub forward slash join. Finally, and most importantly of all, thank you so much for listening. I know that it's not always easy to make time for your ongoing professional development, but I also know that all the very successful fundraisers I've ever interviewed share this particular habit. They keep on learning throughout their career. So thank you for finding a way to practice this crucial habit. I hope you have a great week and I look forward to sharing another episode with you next time when I'll be exploring the fascinating discipline of experiential fundraising. <laughs>